welcome back to the Very Short Introductions podcast. From public health to Buddhist ethics, soft matter to classics and art history to globalisation, or showcase a concise and original introduction to a wide range of subjects for wherever your curiosity may take you. So here is today's Very Short Introduction. My name's Charles Barr. I'm a professor of film studies, now retired. My career has been spent mainly in England at the University of East Anglia, but I also taught for a few years overseas in the Irish Republic and in America. And that kind of experience is important because it gives you a fresh angle on your own country and culture, and in this case, your own cinema, which is the topic of my book, British Cinema, A Very Short Introduction. In the past, I've written books about Alfred Hitchcock and about Ealing Studios. Most people in Britain beyond would recognize those names even though Ealing's last films were made in the late 1950s and Hitchcock's in the mid-1970s. A situation can still easily be referred to as being as tense as a Hitchcock thriller, like Psycho perhaps, or as lovably eccentric as an Ealing comedy, titles like The Titfield Thunderbolt or Passport to Pimlico. The titles themselves feel eccentric. Ealing is unmistakably British, belonging to British cinema and culture and history. Hitchcock, in contrast, is best known as a Hollywood director. The films he made there in the 1940s, like Rebecca, the 1950s, like Vertigo, the 1960s, like Psycho and the Birds. Some people, even in Britain, wouldn't be aware that Hitchcock was a Londoner, but he didn't go to Hollywood till he was 40. Before that, he made more than 20 films in England, of which the best known are probably the political thrillers of the 30s, The 39 Steps and The Lady Vanishes. Hitchcock was formed in British cinema, and he's just as much a part of its history as Ealing is. Both of them clearly demand a place within any survey of British cinema, working out how they fit in, in their different ways at different times. Hitchcock in the 1920s and 30s, then Ealing in the 1940s and 50s. But of course, They're part of a much wider history, spanning more than a century and tens of thousands of films. It's probably true of all the books in this series of very short introductions that they can only really offer to provide a framework for understanding the topic. And it's certainly true of this one. I try to provide a critical framework, a conceptual framework and a historical framework. First, the critical framework, for which I go back again to my own personal experience. I began to engage with cinema in the 1960s, a time when it was no kind of academic subject. The idea of a film studies professor was unthinkable. Very few books were yet written about films, but there was an explosion of interest and excitement about the medium, which laid the foundation for all the academic and scholarly apparatus that we now have. It was very much part of the culture of the 60s, this change. Television was expanding rapidly and cinema had to adapt in new directions. This excitement in Britain, as in a lot of other places, was focused mainly on the riches of Hollywood cinema, past and present, and on new cinema from Europe, countries like Sweden and Italy and France. British cinema was pretty much universally seen at that time as far inferior with a few bright spots illuminating a dreary landscape. A major document of the time was a book-length interview with none other than Alfred Hitchcock, conducted by the French critic and filmmaker François Truffaut, a leading member of the celebrated French New Wave. 
At one point, he suggested to Hitchcock that there was a certain incompatibility between Britain and cinema. It just wasn't as central to the culture or as rich and expressive as in other countries. Hitchcock politely went along with this, and so did many others, me included. For one thing, it was hard in those days to get access to the range of old films that might have helped to change this view. Few films were then shown on television, and of course we had no DVDs and no streaming. As time went by, this started to change, and like many other people, I started to catch up and to get more interested in British cinema and its history. But that very strong hostility from the formative decade of film scholarship took a long time to dispel, and residues from it still persist. It's important to understand this as part of the history. British cinema has had a persistent struggle to establish itself critically, just as it has economically, which brings me to the historical framework. In the book, I suggest a very rough pattern of ups and downs in the prestige and achievements of British film production throughout the 20th century, alternately decade by decade. The new medium of cinema took shape in the 1890s. In the early years of the new century, the 1900s, there were many brilliant British technical innovators, but they were swept aside in the next decade, the 1910s, by the sheer dynamism of American production. The new American companies established a ruthless economic control over British cinemas. From then on, British cinemas would struggle to resist this, either by trying to emulate Hollywood or by creating their own distinctive forms of cinema, with varying success. The 1920s are promising, with, for instance, the early films of Hitchcock and the foundation of the documentary movement, a very British development. But the 1930s, despite the continuation of Hitchcock and the growth of documentary, are a down period. This is the decade of what's been termed the Hollywood British film the film based on British history or literature or drama, but made in Hollywood, with better production values and higher audience appeal even in Britain than the native rivals could manage. Films like The Charge of the Light Brigade, films of Dickens, films of Shakespeare, and the early World War II film Mrs. Miniver, centered on a gallant British family, but shot entirely in Hollywood and a huge success everywhere, not least in Britain. But by the time of Mrs. Miniver, 1942, British cinema was itself starting to become a purposeful part of the war effort, with a kind of support from audiences and from government under Winston Churchill, a great film fan, that it had not had before. And the 1940s is indisputably British cinema's finest decade. Dickens was taken back from Hollywood to Britain. Shakespeare was taken back, among a range of films now seen as classics, made by a golden generation of filmmakers like David Lean, Carol Reed, and the partnership of Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. Films like Hamlet, Great Expectations, The Red Shoes, to name just three. All those three films featured prominently at the Hollywood Oscars ceremony. Oscars may be crude as an indication of merit, but they do serve as a marker of international visibility and prestige, and it is a fact that British films have mainly been honoured historically in alternate decades, the 40s, the 60s and the 80s, decades when interesting things were happening in British society and politics and cinema engaged in its own dynamic ways with these developments.
the pattern of alternation, alternating decades, doesn't really stand up after that, as cinema becomes increasingly international, indeed globalized, but it's very strong, I would suggest, up to the 1980s. Finally, the conceptual framework. What do we mean by British? What do we mean by cinema? Britishness. This concept has become increasingly problematic, notably with the continued pressure for Scottish independence, but the tensions have always been there. Often when we say British cinema, we mean English cinema, and indeed South of England cinema. Films have in fact engaged with these tensions in exciting ways through what we could call the genre of the Northern, comparable in its way to the Western in Hollywood, setting the South of England against the North or the English against the Scottish. It's a very rich vein of cinema. And what do we mean by cinema? For Hitchcock in the 30s, for Ealing in the 40s and 50s, for me and others starting to engage with cinema in the 60s, this concept was not a problem. It meant films shown in cinema buildings, films shot and projected on celluloid film. Now that celluloid format is rare, overtaken by digital, and we no longer need to go into cinema buildings. We have access to a mass of old films and new films on TV channels and DVD and Blu-ray and on YouTube and on streaming channels as well as still in cinemas. But there are still some fascinating continuities between old British films and new, as I touch on in the book. And the very ease with which we can now access films past and present allows us to understand those continuities and to appreciate the ways in which British films have engaged with their historical moments over the decades, those of Hitchcock and Ealing and many others. If I've helped to spark your interest in this topic of British cinema, you may want to go in two directions. Watch a few old British films closely and work out what they tell us about the particular time and culture within which they were produced. Secondly, Go back now and then into the physical surroundings of the cinema and renew the sense of what a difference it makes to see a film in those conditions on the big screen and without the chance to pause the narrative. The cinema for which Alfred Hitchcock worked all his life in Hollywood, but before that in his formative years in Britain. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Very Short Instructions podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on your favourite app, such as Apple or Spotify, to receive all of our episodes directly in your feed. All of our episodes, new and old, can also be found on SoundCloud and YouTube at Oxford Academic.